What the world needs now is positivity. Connecting, relating, and being human together is where it's at. Hi there, honey German, and I know life happens, but trust, you got this. And State Farm got us. It feels good knowing that State Farm agents are there to help you choose the right coverage with great support 24-7. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. With your Amex card, entertainment benefits like special ticket access and pre-sales to select can't-miss events while supplies last, make every tap music to your ears. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house. And I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Hey, MR. Hey, Wilmer. So it's spring and it's beautiful and it's time for Essential Voices. That's right. So last week, we spoke to Nicole Salima and Armando Pacheco, who are two invaluable links in the global supply chain. And they are also two invaluable members of my family. It was a pleasure to have them join the mix. And after speaking to them, I definitely want to learn more about the rest of the chain. So who do we have this week, MR? This week, we're talking to Mayor Robert Garcia and journalist Christopher Mims. Mayor Garcia is the mayor of Long Beach, California, where Nicole works at the port. Christopher Mims writes for The Wall Street Journal and wrote a book about the global supply chain called Arriving Today. And both know the ins and outs of a system that touches all of us, but remains fairly quiet for most of us until it breaks down. In the spirit of keeping things moving, let's get started. Mayor Garcia, it's a pleasure having you. Thank you, Christopher, for being here too. It's a pleasure having you here. This is a unique conversation. It's one that a lot of people never really thought about when they were getting their products and when they were getting their things delivered and when they magically felt like they could have an instant card here and all of a sudden their groceries just showed up. They really didn't even know that this stuff was being driven by people that were driving through the empty streets and you know, this scary, you know, post-apocalyptic vision of where everyone had to stay at home orders and all that. And as we evolve and develop, we realize how important they were. So I'd love to dive in real quick for both of you. What are your reactions to Nicole and Armando's stories? Uh, maybe we'll start with you, Mayor Garcia. Yeah, I mean, I think both Nicole and Armando are sharing a real American story right now that we're all experiencing and witnessing across the country. Essential workers have always been doing the work and always been struggling doing that work. Almost always, these are workers that are not paid enough, that some are working under unfair labor standards. These are workers that don't have the luxury of taking days off or having paid sick days all the time. And so this last couple of years have really, I think, shown the country that these folks are much more indispensable than they, than they thought so. I think a lot of us obviously have known how important that work is. I, I think about what Nicole said about the ports. Uh, 40% of America's goods come out of Long Beach and LA. That's 40% of trade in and out of those just those two ports alone. And so to keep that economy going, what the longshore workers did uh, at that port was heroic. I mean, it's heroic all the time, but especially during that moment when there was so much uncertainty. And by the way, we had longshore workers that, that died of COVID-19 that were on the docks. We had longshore workers that were working, not knowing if they were going to get vaccinated. 
We were debating, I mean, the, the state and the federal government about trying to get vaccines down to get longshore workers priority for vaccination. So they are beyond essential. And I think, you know, oftentimes we are now calling these workers, you know, heroes in some cases, and they are. I think now it's up to all of us to, to recognize that if, if we're going to call these workers essentials, essential and heroes, then we also have to pay them what they deserve at the workplace. Thank you, Merit. And uh, what about for you, Christopher? Both Nicole and Armando's stories, you know, reflect the stories that I've heard from many other workers in their position, both in ports and driving trucks. So I don't think that they're at all out of the ordinary, unfortunately. And I thought it was really poignant when Armando said, you know, suddenly we were treated as heroes. I hope that people don't forget this moment and what they've learned. And I think that, you know, we're at a unique time where Workers who are in certain roles before, I think they were really invisible, especially in supply chain. You know, people who get us the stuff that we absolutely rely on to live every day. My experience writing a book about this has been, you know, when people read it, they just say, oh, my God, I had no idea. And it's like, yeah, no, nobody talks about this. It's like the least sexy part of the economy, but also the most essential. So that to me is kind of baffling. Mm. So, you know, I hope that people continue to educate themselves about the lives of these kinds of workers. And, you know, frankly, I think that we're all going to have to, because a lot of the disruptions we saw during the pandemic, that's not over. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, a million Americans almost died of COVID. One estimate I've seen is that another 1.7 million Americans may have been taken out of the workforce by long COVID. Then you think about the disruptions to childcare, the number of women who've been taken out of the workforce as a result. You think about, you know, previous administration's policies on immigration and how many millions of workers were not added to our economy as a result. So, you know, we're at full employment right now, more or less. And a lot of these jobs, it is hard for employers to hire workers into them, which means I think we are going to continue to have disruptions to being able to get the goods that we rely on and they're going to get more expensive. Mm. And that is all down to, you know, if there are enough workers in these roles or not, and how are they being treated? Because that affects how long they stay in these roles. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think that also kind of points to what Nicole was saying, which we'll talk about a little bit later, but about automation and kind of where we're headed. And the fact that, you know, she's bringing up the fact that she feels it'll kind of collapse our economy, which is a a big statement. But I definitely think there's truth to what she's saying there and that fear. And Christopher, I want to go back for a second to what you said, because I kind of chuckled where you were saying that the supply chain is the least sexy part of the economy, right? I think that's a really good way to put it, because you're right that people, for many of us, it's sort of invisible, this invisible entity that exists and we don't think about it. And it's kind of a big question, but I'm wondering if you can give us a little bit of a summary of how these goods are shipped and transported. Yeah, I mean, it's such a long story that I ended up writing a 300-page book on it, but right. <laughs> the bottom line is that it's like, you know, most goods, finished goods are made in Asia. So to give you the real, real thumbnail version of it, it's this 14,000-mile journey, you know. It starts at a factory somewhere in Asia or Southeast Asia. You know, goods are put onto a container ship. You know, they travel all the way across the Pacific, which can take a month. You know, and then they go to a port like Long Beach, you know, where Mayor Garcia and the longshoremen, whom we heard from, you know, have dominion. And, you know, 
that's just the beginning of the domestic journey, which is hugely complicated because those goods have to get out of the port. They got to get trucked to a warehouse, transferred to a long haul truck. Then they go to a fulfillment center if it's e-commerce. Then they're broken down into the individual packages, which gets delivered to our house, mm. goes to a sorting center. Then it goes to a delivery station. Then it gets on a UPS truck or a you know a USPS van. Then it gets delivered to your house. And I mean, that is the most superficial version of that journey I can give you. It's unbelievable. Any one item that you order online, you know, dozens, a hundred people touched it, untold machines, tens of thousands of miles. So every one of those journeys is kind of a minor miracle of our modern economy. A hundred percent. I mean, you just said dozens or a hundred people have touched the one item. It's like, we don't, we don't think about that, those invisible hands that are getting us the things that we take for granted every day. And for you, Mayor Garcia, what is the port of LA and Long Beach's role in this supply chain? Like once the items get there, what's kind of the role there? I mean, most American ports operate in the same way where there's terminal operators. Oftentimes these large terminal operators are owned by large conglomerates, international conglomerates, shipping companies. And the ports are there to help facilitate, essentially operate the land as landlords. And these operating companies then have agreements with a variety of the targets of the world and, and, and the grocers of the world. Roles as ports and as cities, you know, we want to make sure that first and foremost, we have authority to make sure that people that are on these sites are treated well, are, are respected. We're ensuring that wages are fair. We're also making sure that we have good operators and we're trying to push bigger policies. So we're trying to push whether it's terminal operators, whether it's truck driving companies to have tougher and better clean air standards, making sure that we're focused on infrastructure. Infrastructure is a big part of what port authorities do, which is we're building out the infrastructure so that these large companies are able to come in and move goods faster. Right now, for example, there's a lot of conversation about infrastructure at ports. That investment is critical to the supply chain. And a lot of the work that Nicole and others are doing at these ports is dependent on federal intervention and federal resources to do this massive project, whether it's rail projects, whether it's making sure that you're dredging so that the ships can come in and out of the ports. Our role is really about infrastructure and about making sure that we've got good operators at the ports. We'll be right back after this break. I love sharing positive tips with my listeners on everything from health challenges to relationship troubles. Because life happens, baby, but you got this. Hi there, I'm Honey German, and I know we can all use some positive energy these days. That's why I make sure to empower my community, because a bit of motivation and support can go a long way. And luckily, we have State Farm to support us. Like when you talk to a State Farm agent to choose the coverage you need, and they have the options to protect the things you value most. It's the perfect positive tip you need. State Farm is also a big supporter of the My Cultura Podcast Network, where we as podcast hosts get to share our experiences and stories. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Listen to new episodes of your favorite My Cultura shows wherever you listen to podcasts. This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. Is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh, my. Look at that. He is. And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win. Unbelievable. When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. 
Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back to Essential Voices. It's really impressive when you describe the chain of events, right? And then, Mayor, when you explain the role, you know, I hope that people right now, as they're listening, they're going like, oh, my Lord. <laughs> like, I had zero idea how much I need to appreciate, but most importantly, be conscious when something gets late to your house, <laughs> instead of calling <laughs> and complain about it and be like, something went off, you know, and the hundred hands that touched this. But Mayor Garcia, you kind of pivoting into that and understanding the road and most importantly the journey that Long Beach became obviously the, the model for the vaccine rollout early on. Can you walk us through what you did for the community of Long Beach and more specifically for dock workers like Nicole? Yeah, I mean, I'm really proud of the response we had in Long Beach as it relates to the vaccine rollout. I mean, we were the first city to vaccinate teachers, the first city to vaccinate 99% of seniors, we did people with disabilities first in the entire city of California. And we honestly, on as it relates to dock workers, we pushed so hard and bent the rules that we got dock workers vaccinated probably before we were supposed to, but we knew how important it was to, to the economy. Well, what happened in the greater like Los Angeles area with the vaccine Honestly, it's hard to describe because of all of the failures in the system that happened across the region and the state. But essentially what caused the issues, and I think what we did better than most, was as vaccines were coming in across the country in that first production cycle, the governments, the feds of the state were telling cities and municipalities to essentially put aside both doses. And so what they were saying is like, give folks their first dose of the vaccine but then put aside half of what you're getting so that that second dose is reserved for when they get their second dose many weeks later. So what that was causing was massive shortages of folks who needed the vaccine immediately. What we did, and honestly the state was not a fan of, but it actually ended up working out for us, is we made the decision early on. I said, we have with the team, you know, all this vaccine. Why would we save half of it for many, many weeks? We should just get rid of it until we run out. Let's get as many people the vaccine as possible. And I'd rather have people have their first dose than some folks waiting around a little bit longer, maybe for their second dose. That enabled us then to vaccinate teachers early. It enabled us to give the, what was supposed to be the second dose for other folks to dock workers getting them their first dose. And so we were able to just to move a lot faster through the system because we used that second dose that we were supposed to hold on to for weeks. Within a couple of months, the state transitioned and then we all began doing what we were already doing in the city, which helped. But when it relates to dock workers, they weren't even considered on that top list. If you remember the list, at least the way it came out in California and mm -hmm. most states, mm -hmm. first you had to vaccinate people that were 65 and over. Then after 65 and over, you get you can vaccinate some essential workers, what the government told you was essential, but not everyone was in that group. And so you had, for example, bus drivers, mm. uh, transit workers who were getting people to and from work that were not in that group. You had dock workers who were trying to move goods in and out of the country were not in that first group. And so I think that if the cities and counties and jurisdictions that kind of threw the rules out the window and just started vaccinating as many essential workers as possible were the ones that got ahead of the vaccination process. And, and that's what we did. We were the first port to start vaccinating dock workers in the entire country. And you should have seen the dock workers and, and the leadership, particularly the dock workers union, 
could not have been more grateful because they were seeing their brothers and sisters die at the port of COVID. I mean, that's just incredible. I had no idea. <laughs> so it sounds like you all did incredible work. I think your approach to being like, wait, why are we saving this second part of the vaccine? Let's get as many people vaccinated with at least one dose as possible. Sounds like a really good plan at a time where like nobody really knew what the best practices were. So it sounds like you were all really light on your feet and, and did the best that you could to make sure that these essential dock workers were protected. And especially working through really difficult conditions like both Armando and Nicole outlined for us. I mean, Armando was talking about how there wasn't anywhere for him and his fellow truckers to go to the bathroom. And that's just one of many things that, you know, we've been hearing from essential workers under very unfair labor practices for the last couple of years. And Christopher, I'm I'm wondering, you know, hearing some of the things that Armando outlined, these difficult conditions and sort of how truckers maybe were were valued in some states and maybe not as much in other states. I'm wondering how kind of these difficult conditions relate to rates of burnout and turnover and retention. Yeah. So, I mean, the American Trucking Association, which is a lobbying body, which mostly just represents large trucking companies, which are not the majority of the freight that's moved by truck in America. So that's an important caveat. But the ATA says America is going to have a huge trucker shortage, you know, we're going to be short hundreds of thousands of truckers within a few years. And they're not wrong. I think some of their proposed solutions are misguided because the real problem is people don't stay in trucking, especially new young truckers. They tend to get in, they burn out really quickly, you know, and some of the reasons are the the ones that, uh, you know, Armando outlined. I mean, we have a really basic shortage of, for example, places for truckers to sleep in America. Mm-hmm. You would think that this would be treated as a national crisis because, you know, maybe the feds would get involved. You know, maybe it would have been part of the infrastructure bill. It wasn't in there. It really baffles me. Even at the national level, I feel like the real interest of most truckers has almost no representation. It's really should be a national scandal, I think. Mm-hmm. You know, there are other challenges that have to do with, you know, how the industry is regulated. But the bottom line is, you know, truckers in America today, they get paid by the mile. If they're not moving, they're not getting paid. That's a real challenge for them because, you know, they spend a lot of time being idle at warehouses and other spots where they have no control over how long they're there and they're not getting paid for that time. And yet we are moving more freight by truck than ever. So we are really putting, you know, these huge demands on the industry and we're trying to pull more and more people into it, but there's not enough attention paid to, is this a sustainable job? Is Mm -hmm. it being organized? Is the work being organized in a way where people who, you know, have families who want to spend time with those families can stay in these jobs? I mean, that's why the trucking workforce keeps getting older, right? Because it's only these really, (laughs) hate to say it, but grizzled veterans who are really dedicated to it, Mm -hmm. who are willing to spend all that time on the road, you know, 21 days out of every month on average, you know, 14 hour days. It's a very hard life. Some of them are compensated accordingly, but it is very hard to get people to stick with that job. Let me also add that most truck drivers, by the way, are not represented or are employees. The vast majority of truckers, particularly here on the West Coast, are individual operators basically small business owners. So if you can imagine in the Port of Long Beach, you get maybe 15,000 individual truck drivers that have maybe owned one truck or two trucks, or they own their own truck and they have no worker protections. They have no labor. There's no real labor standards for most of these folks. 
which is why, you know, our organizations like the Teamsters and others are trying to organize truck drivers mm-hmm. and actually classify them as employees of right. these larger corporations. Because many of these guys are going out, they're getting a truck and they're in debt for the truck. They're never being able to pay off the truck. And then they're working these long hours. They're tired. They have no benefits. The trucking crisis in this country is, is not just one of not there being enough infrastructure, which I think Christopher is absolutely correct. It's also one of representation. They're misclassified as these individual operators where they really should need the protections of unions, which they most of them actually support. And that's the other big part of, of the trucking crisis is they're not organized enough under these uh, larger groups that protect them with benefits. And Mayor, to piggyback on what you're saying, the other thing that people are not accounting for is that you talked about the debt, right? They go, okay, maybe this is a good business. I'll buy a truck or two trucks and then make the payments a month. But while I'm doing that, I'm putting in the hours and the truck pays for itself in quotes, right? And then they get into a situation where they're like, you know, well, I have to join a big company. And what people don't understand, the companies like a FedEx, like Amazon, right? All of these companies go to all these privately owned trucks. They stick the Amazon and the FedEx label on it, right? And it looks like they're a company, you know, delivery truck. But really, these are privately owned by individuals who now are embedded to not only work for this system, but they now have to inherit certain regulations that are illogical. They're illogical. The people that are actually computing how many hours it should take to drive from one place to another, how long does it take to load a truck and to actually take the goods off the truck and into either a home or a business, don't drive trucks. I mean, literally, they're doing it by math. They think that, okay, it should take a person no more than 10 minutes to load a package of this many pounds. But then there is warehouse and company regulations that says you're only allowed to have one box per dolly. You can't have two or three boxes in there. So now you're eating up the time that you're supposed to be using to load up your truck so then you can leave on time. And then, you know, obviously... They tell you, you know, and, and Christopher brought it up that I thought it was beautiful that you, you brought this up, where they sleep. Because as soon as that truck tells you, you got to pull up per our regulations, they have to pull up in the middle of a freeway. And when you see all those Mack trucks and the freeway, you know, Armando spoke about it so beautifully, you know, like there is a line of trucks that are randomly parked on the freeway. And people are like, what are these trucks doing here in the freeway? They're not supposed to be sitting here. Well, if they don't stop the truck when they're supposed to, wherever they possibly are, they get penalized and they get marked up for, you know, negligence. So there's just so much about the system itself that sets them up for failure that I just think it contributes to the burnout rate. At that point, it's just like, how am I sustainable? How am I like now at this point, then one of those companies go, look, we can pay you a severance and we'll keep your truck. 100%. That's exactly what happens. I just have one last thing on this. I think it's really important. These large corporations, the Amazons, the, the large companies, they basically hire other quote unquote companies that are trucking companies. Then these trucking companies sign contracts with these individual independent drivers that basically treat them like an employee, but all the responsibility and all of the liability is on the truck driver. And so so they actually are employees, they're misclassified. I mean, that's really at the end of the day. And these truck drivers are saying, we own all of the liability, none of the benefits, we can't actually increase our pay, we're stuck paying payments. And this company essentially controls the entire fleet. It is one of the big injustices in this country right now is what's happening to truck drivers and the industry. And 
when you have these truck drivers that are essentially coming home with almost no pay and stop these payments, it's something that has to change in this country. We'll be right back after this break. I often get asked why I'm such a big fan of wrestling. And it's all thanks to my grandma. Growing up, we would watch matches together. And that bond turned me into a lifelong fan. Hi, I'm Freddie Prince Jr. And on my podcast, Wrestling with Freddie, we know how important it is to have the right teammate. Because things can get pretty tricky, quick. So, when things get complicated and you need help, State Farm gives you options. They show you what's possible for ensuring what matters to you. One of the things that matters to me? Sharing memories and revisiting wrestling's greatest moments. And with State Farm's support of the My Cultura Podcast Network, I get to do just that. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Listen to new episodes of your favorite My Cultura shows wherever you listen to podcasts. There's no distance too far for the perfect trip. Hi, checking in for... Or the perfect table. Hey, where are you? Coming! And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card... Hey, this looks amazing! I'm so glad you made it. And travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. It's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Welcome back to Essential Voices. We hear about what's going on and how insidious these labor practices are and the fact that there aren't any. Armando was talking to us a part in his story that we didn't hear about women truck drivers getting UTIs because they don't have a place to go to the bathroom. That's another thing that these companies aren't liable for is health issues that may come up during these long routes where people don't have a place to go to the bathroom. And it's just having these really strong unions that exist. I know that the Longshoreman Union is one of the strongest ever. And it's great that those kinds of resources exist, but it's not enough. And it does make me think a lot about kind of the role that the pandemic has had in all of this, because obviously these issues were occurring before the pandemic, but have gotten exacerbated in the last couple of years. And I'm wondering specifically with the pandemic, for folks who may not be exactly super aware, what caused this breakdown and could it have been, like what could have happened differently? So many people came to work, so many people risked their lives to make sure that, you know, all of us had groceries. So they're all to be commended. A big part of the issues was just that we had record demand. People staying home, people not going on vacation, not going out to eat, you know, spending money <laughs> shopping online or whatever. So part of this was just that the whole way that people consume in America just changed. And, you know, some of that change is going to be permanent. So this, this world that we have now where there are challenges with supply chains and there's just record demand for goods to be delivered, you know, all the way to your front door, not just to the local store. 
that is, that's forever. That's just mm-hmm. going to continue. And speaking of change, Nicole spoke about the increase of automation at the ports around the country. Do you see a similar you know, transformation happening in LA and Long Beach, Mayard? And, uh, and Christopher, what are the pros and cons of this automation? I mean, we talked about at the beginning, specifically at the fact that you know, this was, uh, they were flirting with automation before the pandemic and everyone was like, this is going to take people's jobs, you know? And then the pandemic happens and then it becomes very hard to hire personnel, you know, and to find individuals. So it almost feels like this is going to be a situation or a conversation that's going to fast track because it is going to be very hard to multiply, not just the hands on deck, but really automate the solutions for the crisis we have in some of this demand. Mayor, how do you see that? And Christopher, if you can follow that question with the pros and cons of automation. There is automation that already exists in the ports of Long Beach and Los Angeles. And when those terminals kind of switched to the automated systems, a lot of it was driven by certainly the interests of the companies to have less overhead for the workers. There's no question about that but also driven by trying to have sustainable you know, electric vehicles and, you know, and which is oftentimes what's used as the reasons to automate things, right? It's climate change issues. It's those. The truth is, I think that looking back at what's happened with automation, particularly at the Port of Long Beach in Los Angeles, those projects aren't producing or working any harder or producing dramatically different results than mm. the terminals that have uh, full workforces. You know, the best infrastructure investment that we can make, honestly, is in people. There is going to be a place for automation and a place for electric vehicles. But at the end of the day, in this crisis, we depended on people and the dock workers to actually move those goods in and out of the ports. You would destroy the economy of coastal Los Angeles and Long Beach if you automated all those terminals. Those are some of the best jobs that we have. The people that work there have good benefits. They're represented by a union. They've got good wages. And so we have to also weigh what automation actually does to the productivity of the economy. Yeah, I think that, you know, a lot of what Mayor Garcia is saying is true. I've spent time in that part of Los Angeles, the San Pedro area, you know, and it's absolutely the case that there are many, many longshoremen workers there who have high wages because they have had a union for more than a century. I think that is very unusual in America now, as you know. You know, it is challenging because a lot of the terminal operators there claim that if they bring in more robots, more automation, they can have more efficiency. You know, we just went through a supply chain crisis where it feels like, oh, more efficiency is exactly what we need. One of the advantages of those workers being unionized is that when automation comes in, they can negotiate to keep their jobs and switch to different roles. So the last time that there was a negotiation, the union agreed to more automation at certain terminals at the Port of L.A., in exchange for workers being retrained to be mechanics who maintain that automation. So that was, you know, a good compromise. I think, you know, jury's still out on how many of those workers are actually transferred. So sometimes when automation comes in, if workers have, you know, some agency over how it's implemented, they can keep their jobs, they can retrain, but only under special circumstances where the union has a lot of power. Frankly, I don't think that union is going to lose its power because, Even if the total number of jobs at that port shrinks, Mm. it means that the workers who remain are that much more important. Because if you have a worker that you need to oversee, you know, a bunch of robots, and if that worker doesn't show up, that automation can't operate. That worker is even more important than before because, you know, the people who are left can just shut down that whole system. And they have. And by the way, you know, in a couple of months, there's going to be a contract renegotiation between that union 
and the Port of L.A. and the terminal operators, the last time that happened, the president had to intercede to keep cargo flowing through that port. So that is what unions do, right? <laughs> they mm-hmm. go on strike or they slow down the pace of work in order to get their demands met. And that's coming again. That's going to be a big, important negotiation for the future of automation at the Port of L.A. especially. You know, as, we, as we're wrapping things up, I have two more questions uh, for both of you. Mayor Garcia, as we look to solutions, well, how can the infrastructure be updated to better conditions and prevent breakdowns in the future? Well, I think, first of all, the big legislation that the Congress just passed around infrastructure has historic amounts of investment for ports and for supply chain issues. So there's a huge focus right now on supply chain. And we're talking about rail, we're talking about modernizing the trucks, we're talking about terminals, ports. So that is a huge win. The other piece of it is what I mentioned earlier, is that investment in people infrastructure. The best thing we can do to fix future supply chain issues is to make sure that more people in the supply chain are unionized, Mm -hmm. that actually have representation and have good paying jobs with benefits. That will also help fix supply chain issues. Thank you. And, And Christopher, so what solutions do you discuss in your book? You know, they're not that different from what Mayor Garcia just mentioned. I think that, you know, in the long run, as we have fewer and fewer able-bodied workers in the labor force, we're starting to see a resurgence of organized labor. I mean, who would have thought that Starbucks workers who get relatively good benefits would unionize? You know, who would have thought we were going to have a second vote in Alabama on unionization of Mm -hmm. Amazon warehouse workers? I think unionizing truckers and the like is further out and much more challenging, but who knows, maybe they're next, you know? So maybe we're having a resurgence of, you know, workers organizing in order to have more power over the conditions of their labor and not just, you know, oh, pay me more money or I'm going to walk. That's been the only leverage that workers have had to date. You know, maybe we will get there because of challenges with companies just can't find enough workers. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you both so much for your insight and your thoughtfulness, your interest in this essential workers and essential voices, you know, was heard loud and clear today. I think that undeniably anyone who heard this show today is walking away with absolutely a full four course meal on what they needed to know about not just the people, the infrastructure, where we are in society, specifically with this conversation and hopefully where we can go next. Right. And hopefully this continues to add to the momentum of those conversations fast track into a solution. And as we, you know, wind down on our show here, I wanted to offer to both of you, how can our community and all the communities that this show touches uh, support the work that you both are doing? I know, Mayor, you're embarking into another journey right now, so it'd be great to hear what that next chapter is. And Christopher, same thing for you after arriving today, you know, what's, what's also next? How can we support you both? Sure. I've been mayor for seven years. I'm also currently right now running for Congress, which I'm excited about here in the Long Beach, Los Angeles area. I've got support of about 40 local labor unions and really proud of that. And certainly going to be a champion for working people and excited about that next step to work on these broader supply chain issues as well. Thank you. Chris? Yeah, congratulations on that, Mayor Garcia. If you do make it to Congress, I look forward to potentially covering some of your initiatives there. You know, for me, I mean, I know that this is a challenging topic and not everybody's going to go read a whole book on it. But luckily, there's a documentary based on the book. It's coming out in early March, which is... Wow, congratulations. <laughs> on us. It's just in a week or two. 
So, you know, everybody should look for that. It's one of the few things that the journal produces that is going to be free and not behind a paywall. Mm. So, you know, arriving today, the movie is coming and hopefully that's can spark a whole another wave of conversations about this because, you know, I think most people can sit down for 45 minutes and, and watch something about the lives of essential workers in these industries because it touches all of us. Mm-hmm. You know, we all rely on this material, these goods. This is the substance of our life, you know? This is what we need to get through our days. After that conversation, I just want to go to everyone I know and ask them how much they know about those new shoes or the paper towers they just order. Do you know where you came from? How did it get to you? And who brought it to your door? (laughs) I know. And I wonder, too, if folks know about what Christopher shared, that any item we order online has been moved by at least 100 hands. Sometimes ordering things online feels so anonymous, like clicking a button, forgetting about it, and then poof, one day it arrives. When the reality is that without all the folks processing our goods, that mindless click would go nowhere. You're so right. And to come full circle to the beginning of the pandemic, when goods were out of stock and professionals within the supply chain were risking their lives to ensure our needs were met, we want to give a big essential voices thank you to all of you who make up the supply chain. You are essential. You continue to be essential. And we are so grateful for your service. So, gracias. So join us next week when we'll begin a two-part series about the movement for Black lives during the pandemic and first speak with essential worker Miski Noor from the organization Black Visions in Minneapolis. The following week, we'll have a roundtable conversation with civil rights attorney Ben Crump. We'll be back next week. Thank you for joining us. Essential Voices with Wilmer Valderrama is produced by me, M.R. Raquel, Allison Shano, and Kevin Rutkowski, with production support from associate producer Lillian Holman, executive producers Wilmer Valderrama, Adam Reynolds, Leo Clem, and Aaron Hilliard. This episode was edited by M.R. Raquel, Sean Tracy, and Justin Cho, and features original music by Will Rosati. Special thanks to last week's Essential Voices, Nicole Salima and Armando Pacheco, and to our thought leaders, Mayor Robert Garcia and Christopher Mims. Additional thanks to James Aumada. This is a Clamor and WV Entertainment production in partnership with iHeartRadio's My Cultura Podcast Network. For more podcasts from iHeart, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Thank you for traveling with Amex Platinum. To your right, you'll see Oceanside Relaxation at a fine hotel and resort property. When booked through Amex Travel, you can enjoy complimentary breakfast for 2 and 4 p.m. late checkout. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. What the world needs now is positivity. Connecting, relating, and being human together is where it's at. Hi there, honey German, and I know life happens. But trust, you got this. And State Farm got us. It feels good knowing that State Farm agents are there to help you choose the right coverage with great support 24-7. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house. And I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare.